It's not a coincidence that he's following an esoteric fascist account, you know? How many esoteric Hitler accounts are you following, Jonas? Do you know? <laughs> right? No, like, that's not something that someone accidentally does. No, so no, definitely that's not. that's red flag number one. Hello and welcome to DeFire, the crypto podcast that cares about your mental health. Stop doom scrolling, stop checking prices and go for a walk in nature while you enjoy listening to this episode. Just an idea. My name is Jonas and today on the show we're jumping head first into the most successful NFT project of all times, the Bordeaux Yacht Club. That's right, these comic monkey pictures that you've seen all over Twitter and even represented by superstars like Justin Bieber, Jimmy Fallon, Snoop Dogg, Eminem, Madonna, Neymar, Paris Hilton, Timberland and basketball player Steph Curry. It's safe to say that the Board of Yacht Club is a big deal, but it's probably a bigger deal than most of you would expect. Yuga Labs, the company behind the board Ape Yacht Club, has raised 450 million US dollars from venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz at a 4 billion valuation. That's absolutely massive. Earlier this year, Yuga Labs bought the IP rights to CryptoPunks as well, making Yuga Labs the most powerful NFT company in the world. However, since the beginning, Yuga Labs and the founders have been accused of hiding a dirty secret within their NFT collection. Namely, that they have deliberately planted symbols and signs that are racist and anti-Semitic. When I first saw some of the evidence, I was skeptical. I don't know, I didn't really see it, to be honest. Which brings us to today's guest, Wave. Wave is a writer and digital art enthusiast. He was also skeptical at first and even wrote a piece on his blog, kind of defending Yuga Labs. But as he went further and further into this rabbit hole and as he dug deeper into the founder's past, he completely changed his mind. In this conversation, Wave walks us through the most important pieces of what he and others have found when they were trying to answer the question whether the board APR club is in fact founded in racism or not. But before we start the show, a short word from our sponsor. CryptoValley.jobs is a job board where engineers, designers, analysts, traders and community builders can find cool crypto jobs. Full disclosure, I run this job board. So if you're looking for a job or you want to advertise an open position, please go and visit CryptoValley.jobs. And while you're there, make sure to sign up on the email lists so you're always informed when new jobs are posted on the platform. That's CryptoValley.jobs. And now let's start the show. You want to remain anonymous on the podcast and we always respect that. That's kind of like in the crypto culture. But could you just maybe outline quickly why you would like to remain anonymous? You know, the funny thing was when I first started my Substack and intended to start writing about NFTs and NFT culture and digital art culture, I was really more so intending to do things like interview artists, talk to them about their work, talk about different innovations in digital art. And it really wasn't until I wrote this piece on Yuga that my blog became very Yuga focused. But, you know, I've gotten a lot of harassment. I've gotten, you know, some attempts at phishing and hacking and you know there's there's no shortage of people who would probably like to in inflict harm on me over the things that i'm talking about so at the moment mm -hmm. i'm sort of rolling my docs out a little bit slower than i would have and i think that's a good introduction in what is about to come in this conversation i mean why 
are people wishing harm on you, why people try to dox you, etc. And we go into all of that. But I think it makes sense to go like in a chronological order where we, you know, get a little introduction in who you are and then we take it from there and go into the bigger story. Yeah, sure. Just broad strokes about myself. My background is in literature. That's where my expertise is. So that's part of how I got wrapped up into this drama. And, you know, I'm also a big fan of pop culture, music. I love riding motorcycles, art, movies, all that kind of a thing. And then as far as NFTs, I first got into NFTs by Top Shot because I'm actually like a physical collector of basketball cards. I'm a big NBA collector. Mm -hmm. Pokemon too, I do. And that's what initially drove my interest into NFTs. And so, yeah, I've, I've been dabbling in them ever since. And you also told me that you are ethnically Jewish. I'm not sure if you, if you want to share that, but I think it's, it adds, you know, flavor to the whole discussion that we're going into that touches on racism, anti-Semitism, et cetera. Are you okay with sharing that? Absolutely. I do think it is really important context. So yeah, I identify as ethnically Jewish, not religiously or culturally so much. And so from a young age, you know, I was raised around Jewish people. And even though my parents were not Jewish, they were very supportive of, of exposing me to Holocaust literature from a young age. So I started with a book called Number of the Stars by Lois Lowry, probably in third or fourth grade. And that really captured my heart and just my imagination in terms of trying to understand this historical event, how it impacted people and how it continues mm -hmm. to impact our culture to this day. I, I can only imagine being exposed to such material at such a young age. Do you remember like how you felt when you learned about that stuff? I mean, Holocaust, that's super heavy history that must be hard to digest as a, as a child. Yeah. And I mean, obviously at that age, I, I didn't really have the mental faculties to fully grasp it. But like I said, there, there are a lot of books for young people out there, you know, starting as, as young as eight or nine years old to help you learn and build empathy for those who suffered or those who perished in the Holocaust. So uh, let's jump right into what, what we are going to talk about today. And let's it's about it. Board Ape Yacht Club, Yuga Labs. I think most of the people listening to this podcast are aware of what the Board Ape Yacht Club is, also heard Yuga Labs, and they also might have heard rumors or news pieces about evidence of racism, white supremacy, and anti-Semitism hidden in plain sight in their NFT collection. Can you just paint a picture of what, what we're talking about here? Yeah, it can be difficult to summarize because, you know, it's so broad and so sweeping and, and there are so many different rabbit holes that you can fall down. But I think if I were to summarize it for someone who wasn't aware, I would say that from day one, the Board Ape Yacht Club has received accusations of being founded in racism. And that ranges from things uh, including some of the traits that the apes have, so some of the clothes that they're wearing, namely. It ranges to the logo, which I personally feel is both anti-Semitic and racist. And it can range to, you know, certain things about the founder's past that have been uncovered in the last couple of months and how, you know, their experiences and their cultural tastes came to shape the collections they released. I would also say a huge part of it is what I'm calling the Confederate Coda, which was a reference to a Confederate general that they planted very prominently 
inside of their other side collection, which is their metaverse that they're developing. And they essentially left that unchanged until after I confronted the founder about it over the phone. Mm. And then I would also say, too, that they're, you know, this is a little bit harder to make sense of at this point, but we are getting hints of something called esoteric fascism around the edges and that there were elements of accelerationism built potentially into some of the stuff. Initially, that was something I was very skeptical of, but now we're starting to see some of the contours of that stuff come together. <laughs> right now, a lot of prominent people, black athletes, basketball players, musicians, entertainers are using a board AB Club NFT. And if it would be like very obviously racist, then it would be a question why they do it. But what people are accusing the team of is that they're kind of hidden references. And I found this term, which I learned during this research, dog whistle. And I think it's a beautiful image, because it's basically like a dog whistle is a, is a whistle that only the dog can hear and understand. And that's basically signaling out to only to the people who understand these references. And they're, you know, like coming from internet culture, etc. And that's what we're talking about, right? It's like stuff that, yeah, if you show it to somebody, they probably wouldn't know what you're looking at, what, why it is problematic. Yeah, the way racism works today, especially in America, is very different. You can't be just like out and out racist. So you have to do it through signals and codes and messages. And there's a lot within the Board Ape collection that can be interpreted, as you say, as a Nazi dog whistle. And, you know, so I, th I think some of the, the traits actually are on the surface, just purely racist or have questionable elements to them. But then there are others that, you know, it, it can be up to interpretation, but it's definitely the collection or just the amalgamation of all these different elements that people have called out over time. Like I said, this was day one. Day one, people were saying, this this is weird. This is racist. What is going on with this monkey collection? And, you know, over time, they've had a lot of opportunity to kind of clear the air and they just have not done a good job of doing that whatsoever. And instead of, of you know, I, th I think a, a big part of it goes back to the Coindesk interview that they did. This was early on. And one of the founders, Greg, who goes under the pseudonym Gargamel, now Garga, he had this quote where he, he quoted Hemingway's iceberg theory, which is essentially the idea, it, it, it gets boiled down for people. And so he kind of gave the boiled down version of it. But basically that what you see on the surface just creates the depth of feeling beneath that iceberg. So that there's like a lot of hidden or esoteric meanings beneath the surface of these things. And he said something as well about like, none of the stuff in this collection is random, like that we thought about all this stuff very deeply and that there's, there's specific meanings behind it. So that when people look at it, they get a chill down their spine. So they've been on the record saying that they had this very specific design architecture behind their creative choices. And yet they refuse to explain to people you know, where these creative choices came from. They're just completely silent on it. That explains a lot. Because if you know a little bit something about racism and, and the history, you know, already kind of like the apes make you feel a little bit queasy, right? Because apes have been often been kind of like almost like caricatures. Black people have right. been characterized as apes, etc. When you look at it and you can pick up on some things almost like subconsciously, right? Yeah. I would say on the, on the first level, the first layer there is what you mentioned is, is just the fact of the matter of it being an ape collection. 
and there being a lot of historical association that has been used to degrade and subjugate, especially in America, black people. In Europe, you know, some of the same tinges, but you may not realize how deeply a role that that simulation has played in actual violence against people in America. And so there is just that layer there of like, what does it mean to have thousands of predominantly white people who are socially representing themselves as apes? And there hasn't been any kind of conversation. And this is where Yuga Labs should be leading a conversation about what are the implications of that, right? What are we conveying to people, you know, intentionally or inadvertently? So I, I think there's just that top top layer right there. And then there are the actual traits of the ape images as well. So it depends who you ask, but if you were to ask me, which of the original Board Ape Yacht Club traits do I find offensive? The ones that I would say are offensive are the pith helmet and the monkey's paw, which is found in the Kennel Club collection, the fez, the, the sushi chef headband, which depicts a image of a rising sun buttressed by the kanji that reads kamikaze. The rising sun flag that was in the kennel collection as well, which is the only the only one that they've actually ever copped to, you know, making a mistake with and giving people an opportunity to change. The hip-hop gold chains as well. The hip-hop clothing, which was identified by the ADL as, as being offensive. The king's rope, the pickle haub, and the prisoner's outfit. So to me, those are all explicitly or like very like... You know, when you look at it in the context of all of them together, I think that there's explicit racism going on here and that there's explicit bigotry embedded within those. Even if it wasn't intentional, quote unquote, just the thoughtlessness of including these images in the collections and what kind of symbolism that they can convey. Mm -hmm. But we can go into each one individually, if you'd like. I don't know where you'd like to start. Yeah, for, for me now, actually, it's a good question, because when I think about the traits and just... To explain the traits are literally like, you know, the clothes, the... Yeah, the hats, the clothes. Yeah. yeah. The extras, right? That, that make one ape right. distinctive from, from the other one. For, for me, most of the stuff that you, you, you now said, I mean, because it's so much, I would say it's not obviously racist to me. And I am aware of what's going on. That's why I'm having the, the, this call. Sure. But, for, but I think there's levels of kind of like what is deemed appropriate or inappropriate. I could be... Yeah. Totally fine with hip hop clothes and, and gold chains. That for me is not necessarily kind of like a racist, but I think what I thought it was crazy was, for instance, the logo that is modeled yeah. off a Nazi emblem, right? With the and, and, and some other stuff like the, the esoteric fascism, the Yuga references, the name, you know, like the, the Yuga name and et cetera, what that means, what, what I learned about that, all these things. Yeah, but how shall we? <laughs> I wonder now, because since we cannot see the things, how do we describe that? So how about this? What if I kind of went through individually the traits and kind of described why I think that there's potential issues with them? And then from there, after that, we could move to the logo. I think that kind of makes sense as a flow, because that's kind of the order in which people notice that, you know, there's things yeah. that were going wrong. Does that Perfect. work for you? Yeah, that works for me. So the, the first one that I mentioned was the pith helmet. When I say pith helmet, do you know what I'm talking about? I think the first, uh, the World War One helmet. No, that's that's the pickle haub, actually. That's the pickle ah. haub. The, the pith helmet is, they call it the safari hat, I believe. Do you know which one I'm talking about when uh, I say safari yes. hat? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so the, the, the pith helmet is, to me, iconically attached to Belgian colonists. So if you say Belgian colonialism, I think of the pith hat. 
right? So, you know, some people might say, oh, it's just a safari hat, right? But like it, it that, and that's where it's like, you know, these things can have double meanings is that culture has kind of whitewashed the original, you know, like where, where those have been used as symbols of power, right? But again, like I said, you think of Belgian colonialism, you imagine, you know, a, a, a white dude standing there in a, in a pith hat, in a, in a pith helmet, a safari hat. And so I would say accordingly with that, you know, maybe if it was just that alone, it would be able to be dismissed. But they also conceived of the Kennel Club. So the Kennel Club is is the first collection that they airdrop to ape owners, which were dogs, dogs. to go along with their apes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so in that, in that collection, they had a particular trait for the dog where the dog is holding, it's called monkey's paw, and the dog is holding the hand of an ape in its mouth, right? And so notoriously, Belgian colonists would chop off the hands of enslaved Congolese people if they were non-compliant towards slave labor, or they would just do it as a show of power to intimidate enslaved peoples. And so, you know, looking at those two images in conjunction, knowing that they were conceived in the similar time period, leaves me feeling seriously uncomfortable. Like a pith helmet is not something that I would include in a collection about apes. And so, you know, to me, it evokes Belgian colonizers killing millions of Africans, which is a history that a lot of people don't really contend with. To be honest, for instance, I wouldn't have been aware of that. And also, isn't there, isn't there like a, a monkey's paw like a saying with monkey's paw or something? Yeah, so there is an old story written about 100 years ago. I forget what the name of the author was, but essentially the monkey's paw is like, you know, like this trinket that like you can make wishes, except it kind of like messes up your wishes each time. Like it's got like a diabolical twist to it. And so like you see the monkey's paw used throughout culture, like in The Simpsons, for example. But the part Mm -hmm. that like rings weird to me is that the hand in the kennel collection is covered in blood like implying that like it was freshly cut off and so you know in america specifically like we don't learn about european colonialism at all for the most part unless you take advanced courses in in high school maybe but you know if if you if you google belgian colonialism first thing you're going to be confronted with is those pith helmets and it's not going to be hard for you to find examples of of colonists chopping off the hands of of people in africa so like the bloody part is the part that like makes me feel like no this is not just like a reference like it's used in the simpsons but again i I think that that these images kind of work in concert with each other so like another one that people have identified as potentially offensive is the fez and the fez itself also holds like a range of symbolism not all can you tell me sorry what is the fez? What, what, yeah, I don't know what that is. The fez is the little like circular round hat with like the little tassel attached to it. It's red. Ah, is that like the the Turkish? Yeah, hat? Google it real quick. It'll it'll come up. You'll see examples of it. Let's see. So mm-hmm. fez is also the name of a city as well. But you'll yeah, see yeah, the fez hat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like a Persian hat. Mm-hmm. So again. In Africa, this is very much viewed as a symbol of colonialism because it has like a lot of a, a association with France and Belgium and stuff like that. So most militaries in Africa have done away with the Fez. And notably, it was also worn by Nazis too who put the Totenkampf on it. So it's like, again, one of those things that's like independently, 
yeah, maybe it's not, maybe, you know, and maybe there was an intention, but again, you know, you already have one element, which is, you know, historically attached to colonialism, then you have the second one, right? So it's kind of mm-hmm. like how these images work in concert with each other. I think the next one that I had mentioned was the quote unquote sushi chef headband, which is like a, it's a white headband around the, the top of the ape's head. And in the middle of it has the logo of, of the rising sun. And on the sides of it, it has kanji characters. And I'm, I'm not sure if you're aware of this part, but the, the kanji characters say the word kamikaze, which is the, the name that was used to describe fighter pilots in, in, from the Japanese military in World War II, which engaged in suicide missions. And so... It's weird that they pick those kanji characters. It's like, why did you, you guys could have picked anything. Why did you pick kamikaze first? Because a lot of Americans, the first thing that they will think of is Pearl Harbor. Because that is where a lot of historians will point to like the first example of, of a, a kamikaze attack. Mm-hmm. So the word kamikaze is weird to begin with. I think calling it sushi chef headband is also kind of strange. Not that, I mean, obviously sushi chefs do wear this style of headband, but like, and I'm kind of strange not to actually just use the term. And then the other thing too is, and I think people don't realize this, is that the rising sun is a very controversial image. And I'm not here to say, you know, exactly what it means and, and how people should interpret it. Japan itself it can be very divided over, you know, what it means. I, I would say probably older folks who are more traditional in Japan tend to not see it as a, a problematic image, but younger folks in Japan often do take issue with it. So it's just like, why would you introduce that into the collection? It's just not necessary. And again, goes along with that theme of imperialism, colonialism, right? And and that like, you know, like, why is there not a fire helmet, for example, like a firefighter's helmet? If you're trying to come up with what should we put on these, these cartoon characters' heads, fire helmet, something like that. Why are there all these like really oddly specific creative choices being planted in here? Mm-hmm. The traits that you pointed out to me, yeah, I, w- I wouldn't have known that or understood that, to be honest. And I think a lot of people would say, you know, like, we, we are in a time where whatever you do, somebody will get offended, right? You know, the, the term cancel culture was probably the, the word of the last years. How do we know that this is not just somebody going through an, an immensely successful NFT collection and now cherry picking things to tear it apart or try to cancel it. How do we know that? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I'll just speak for myself. I, I think the, the the word cancel culture is just like a funny word to begin with. I think that's maybe a whole separate discussion. But to me, freedom of speech is extremely important. I value mm-hmm. freedom of speech very highly. So I'm not saying that like, oh, they shouldn't have a right to to put this stuff out there. What I What I'm saying is that like, if this stuff doesn't mean the nefarious versions of how people are interpreting it, why aren't they coming out and explaining? What does it mean then? Why did you pick mm-hmm. these very specific images? And, you know, these guys have positioned themselves, Greg and Wiley have positioned themselves as these like intellectual titans, these super well-read guys who are just very educated about politics and very educated about literature and very educated about history. I don't know. I don't know if you, I, I think you said you didn't catch the Nelk Boys interview, but he made a very insulting comment about basically said that people who, who see this stuff have to be stupid. But for them, it's like, okay, if you guys are so smart, if you guys know everything so well, and, and if, like Greg said, none of this stuff is random, right? You had to think about this stuff at some level. And so 
to, for them to say, oh, we don't know about the Civil War. We don't know about World War One. We don't know about World War Two. We don't know about punk culture. We don't know about motorcycle culture. That it's, it becomes like, well, what do you know? And if it isn't the nefarious version of how people are receiving these things, then explain what it is. And you know, they they've had well over a year to be able to get out there and say, well, you know, here's here was the thinking behind the Fez or the Pith helmet, and this is the story that we were trying to tell. But they haven't done that. And why haven't they done that? Right. And and I think, you know, to me, it's like, you know, they point to intent. Well, we didn't mean to. We didn't mean to. Well, fine. But like, I know for a fact, I, I show this to my friends and, and and they find it offensive right away. And this is this is something that's keeping people out of NFT culture. Another hot topic of debate is the logo of the Bordebia Club. It has a circular design, in the middle is an ape skull on a black background, and when you compare it side by side with a neo-Nazi logo, you can't deny that they show some unusual similarities. So, yeah, you tell me, what do you think of the logo? I'm curious, what are your thoughts on the logo, Jonas? Hey, look, for me, that's like the, the leading piece. And that's why a lot of people also, when you, when you see the videos and the, everything that has been written about it, also in the mainstream media, they lead yeah. with that similarity. Because if you take the Borde logo, the emblem, you know, with the round circle around it, with the skull in the middle, and you map it on top of a, a Waffen-SS Nazi logo, it's just like striking that it has to have been the blueprint There's for the logo. Yeah, so... I mean, for, for folks who are listening at home, if you go to gordongoner.com, which is Wiley's pseudonym, this is the website that was created by Ryder Rips. But at it, at the towards the top, he has a pretty prominent comparison of those two logos side by side, the Board Ape Yacht Club and the, and the Waffen Totenkampf logo. So the Board Ape Yacht Club logo lockup is shares a lot of characteristics with the Waffen Totenkampf. And maybe I should explain what the Totenkampf is first. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the Schutzstaffel, the 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 wing uh, of the Third Reich's military, had adopted the Totenkampf. It had like a long history in German military, but the SS was the wing of of the Nazis that ran the con concentration and the extermination camps. And so they they wore those Totenkampf logos, which is like a skull, as you said, with eighteen teeth. It's facing left. Um, they wore that on their caps and their collars. And then Heinrich Himmler would give out the, these rings that had the, the, the death set, the Totenkampf skull, out as awards. But when a Nazi officer would die, Himmler would have them reclaimed and would, I, I think the idea was that they would be destroyed, right? And so the core understanding here is that the, the Totenkampf doesn't just symbolize death or danger, but also loyalty, quote unquote, to the Aryan Brotherhood and to their Nazi leaders, right? Mm -hmm. And then so throughout history, culture had kind of kept the Totenkampf alive. A lot of it, you could find prominent images of Jimmy Page, for example, from Led Zeppelin, Ron Ashton from the Stooges, Lemmy from Motorhead rocking the Totenkampf, right? And so it kind of gotten laundered through 70s rock music. But then mm -hmm. in the 80s, nationalism started taking over in Britain, like very prominently, like 80% of the country was like in agreement with nationalist sentiments, very anti-immigrant. And so the British National Front and some other organizations started pushing the Totenkampf through soccer hooliganism and music culture. And so a famous example of that, and this is why it's important to understand the 18 teeth, probably the most historically notable neo-Nazi 
band in existence was the white supremacist band Screwdriver, which was founded by a skinhead named Ian Stewart Donaldson. And so Ian Stewart Donaldson, you know, he had this extremely racist Nazi band. And after he got out of prison, he created a group named Blood and Honor, which is named after the slogan that was etched into the knives of the Hitler Youth Movement. And so he was actually actively collaborating with former members of the SS who still lived in Germany. And he was also collaborating with KKK leaders in the United States to establish Blood and Honor chapters. And this is still, this is a group that's still active today. Blood and Honor was active at the Charlottesville rallies. But the, the connection to the 18 teeth and understanding that, so they took the Totenkopf. And this is why, because I think listeners might be skeptical, well, you know, like the, the, the alphanumeric coding that the first and the eighth letters of the alphabet, A and H, which formed the initials for Adolf Hitler. Combat 18 was the paramilitary wing of Blood and Honor. And they're both active transnational terrorist organizations today that are that are recognized as terrorist groups by the Canadian government, by the German government, and they have been like attached to assassinations, violence, all that sort of a thing. But yeah, the their, their whole idea was about like exterminating Jews and bringing back the final solution and creating a quote unquote Aryan homeland and everything like that. But they used the Totenkopf and considered Ian Donaldson very prominent. So that was a big part of their imagery. And that's part of why that those 18 teeth, that's such a specific no-go in design. It's something that's supposed to be untouchable because it calls upon violently hateful culture and history and, and not just like history, but Groups that are still active today and still using those mm -hmm. logos. And so to bring it back to the Board Ape Yacht Club logo, there's a specific version of the Totenkampf logo that Ryder has identified. There's actually an artist, I think, who brought it to his attention. But when you put them side by side, the similarity is, I mean, it's, it's, I don't even know how to describe it. So I think even just quantifying it for people is, so here's the things that they share. They both have a black and white color scheme, which okay. You know. They both have the text wrapped around the emblem in a circular manner. So on the, they've got Board Ape Yacht Club kind of wrapped around the, the, the emblem in the center. And so far, this is all pretty standard design stuff. But then in the middle, the centerpiece is an emblem, which is facing at an upward angle, and it's facing the left. And both of them have 18 teeth. Right. And, and that's what mm -hmm. I'm saying. That concept of 18 teeth is supposed to be untouchable in design. And to me, I, I mean, I have to believe that people like Wiley, who says he's a, you know, a, a, a hardcore punk fan and Gaio Siri, who is also like very involved in punk music, too. Like they have to know who Screwdriver is. It might not be a name that carries to everyone, but like anyone who's into punk music, especially that era, knows exactly who Screwdriver is. So then you also have, like right next to both of them, you have the emblem buttressed by a pair of initials on both sides, the B-A-Y-C, and then for the Waffen Totenkopf logo, it's got the SS on both sides. And then notably, and this is why Ryder feels that the this particular Totenkopf image was probably used as a reference, they both have ragged edges around the side. So... You know, to me, there, there's no no one's been able to show me any examples of any kind of logo lockup that resembles this in any way whatsoever. People like to be like, well, there's skulls and obviously there's, you know, text wrapped in radial design, but there's not logos being used out there in the world. And if, if people have examples, I, I would love if they could send them to me. 
there's just not examples of skulls with 18 teeth that are designed with all these specific logo layouts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it, but it's interesting because, you know, following your Substack, reading what you've written, you came out and looked at the collection and you wrote actually the first piece was kind of defending Yuga oh, yeah. Labs and the founders. And it was also about a thing that somebody felt, you know, offended by it. And I think it was because one of the founders, and we have to introduce him now, one you already na- named, Greg Solano, the other one is called, where is his name, Wiley? Wiley Arno. Wiley is the one that I had the phone call with. Greg I've spoken to via DM, but he's a lot more reticent. Wiley's got a big mouth. Yeah. And for a long time, these founders have been only known by their Twitter handles. They were anonymous. They have represented they're themselves also in fashions that are questionable. And one of them was Gargamel, which is like the, the yeah. bad guy in the Smurfs, right? That yeah. some people have said that it could be seen as a kind of stereotype of like the greedy Jewish guy with the nose and, you know, like being a bad person, etc. But you came out defending Greg Solano in that case, saying that, that you don't think that's the case. How is that different from, you know, the other traits? Or, or can, can you tell the story? I, th- I think it would be interesting to, to, to dive yeah, deeper into that. Yeah, let me tell the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So, so first of all, yeah, that, that, the first piece I wrote was called On Gargamel, right? And it was specifically focusing around one specific claim. And it was very defensive in support of Yuga, I would say. There were elements of it that were like critical or questioning. But, you know, anyone who, who read the whole thing definitely walked away with the idea that I was defending Yuga from these allegations. What, what I would say to, to put into context was... I would go back to the beginning of the piece because I didn't say that, look, there's nothing weird going on here. You know, I, I said that I, I remembered feeling discomfort at the time where, you know, where Bored Apes minted and, and looking at the pickle hound and looking at the safari hat and that, you know, that, that there were discussions on, on social media, like from day one about, you know, people finding issue with what was going on here. And I also said I was really bothered by the recent inclusion of Stonehold Jackson, that they had the audacity to include such an offensive reference, such a racist reference so prominently in the collection after months and months of all these accusations of them initiating the lawsuit, all that sort of a thing. It's like, how did you guys, like, what were you guys thinking with this? Right. And so, you know, I wasn't letting them off scot-free. Mm-hmm. But wait, so, yeah, now we're jumping in different stories at the same time. You know, I found it interesting. And I think it even adds to the credibility that you first went looking for reasons and arguments of defending them. And then later on, it seems like to me changed your mind about it yeah you know i think i think what was bothering me was just like they were so silent through the entire thing and i was just kind of like if someone's out there calling you a nazi if that happened to me i would i would be out there being like there's no chance in hell like uh, there's absolutely no way and i would i would be addressing these things and if there were you know things that people found to be an issue I, i would work to change it right like that's it's like a basic level corporate response in modern society so you know, to me, it was it was kind of about trying to get my foot in the door with this discussion. And I was kind of curious if maybe they would use that piece as like a platform to be like, you know, let's clear the air here, let's address some things. But they really just embraced it as a means to be silent. And what was important was to, you know, is there racism? Is there anti-Semitism happening in this project? And, I, you know, I kind of said at the end of it, I was kind of like, well, you know, like, 
if we're pursuing false allegations, that diminishes like the real work of fighting anti-Semitism. And that's something that I retract now is, you know, that's that's something that I, I, I look at very differently is I do think that there is real anti-Semitism that people who were critical of this project were addressing. So that's part of the piece that I regret. But, you know, after that, I just kept a very open mind. You know, I listened to people who are pushing back against it. Some people reached out to me. I reached out to some other people. I talked to people in my own life. I kept going into spaces where, you know, people were exercising critical viewpoints and I kept digging and digging. And eventually, you know, that kind of ended up blowing things open. I think that's an important thing is being able to change your mind and admit you were wrong. Definitely. I think also what makes it so hard to really know what is going on is plausible deniability, right? As you said before, I mean, each one of those things by itself, probably not problematic, but if the references keep piling up, where is the point where you say, okay, it's just too much. And then once you have made the decision, then you can look at all of the pieces with more certainty. Since now the frame has shifted to, okay, something fishy is going on, right? Exactly. The thing was, like, after I, I wrote it, people were, like, encouraging me. They're like, you should do the rest of the claims. You should do the rest of the claims. And I was very specific just to stick to, like, one claim that was on Ryder's website. Because that was really the only one that I felt like I could, you know, kind of address. A short side note. The claims that Wave is talking about here refer to a website where people have gathered and documented all the evidence of racism and problematic imagery connected to Yuga Labs. The URL is gordongoner.com. It's linked in the show notes if you want to check it out. And the leading figure behind this effort is an artist called Ryder Rips, just as a side note. But one of the claims on this website is that even the name Yuga Labs is a dog whistle for something called the Kali Yuga, which apparently is a fringe alt-right ideology that is kind of mixing up some Hinduism with Nazi stuff. Why is that important? It's important because Yuga Labs was addressing this claim saying that their name actually was inspired by a character in a Zelda video game. So Yuga Labs has nothing to do with this weird Kali Yuga thing. Keep that claim in mind as we go now forward with the story. And so I, I, I kept looking, kept digging, and it just kind of felt like none of this stuff will ever get figured out. It's just going to remain a mystery forever. And then I came across this blog post by this writer named A.T. Wilkinson. And A.T., similarly to me, had kind of put up this post, you know, kind of saying like, hey, there's, there's some issues going on with Yuga, but is this much ado about nothing kind of a thing? But in his article, he had included a screenshot. And the screenshot he was saying was from Wiley's old Twitter account. It was called Wiley Adult, I believe. And so in the screenshot, let me see if I could pull it up real quick. In the screenshot, you see a couple things. The first thing that you see is that he's listed his location as Cali Yuga. So that, that, that was it. That was a, a bomb in the face of their story about we took the name from uh, a, a villain in Zelda. So that, that's the first thing that you notice. The second is that... And so Wave did some further digging, trying to find more evidence going through Wiley's old tweets. And he was using the Wayback Machine, which is basically an internet archive that allows you to access older or even deleted versions of a website, or in this case, Wiley's old Twitter account. So here's what's really weird. As I'm looking at the Wayback Machine archive, literally as I'm looking at it, the archive got DMCA'd as I was in the middle of looking at it. Uh, and what does that mean, DMC8? So that means that someone issued like a, a basically a takedown request against it. 
that they have some intellectual ownership over the image. So I didn't know that was possible for the Internet Archive, for things to be taken down from the Internet Archive. And mm -hmm. I'm saying literally I saw the active listing and then all of a sudden I refreshed the page and it's gone. I'm like, what the heck is going Crazy on? Crazy coincidence. Right. Yeah, it's just so weird. I've used the Wayback Machine so many times in my life. I have never once seen something get taken down. Certainly not while I was looking at it. All of this seemed a bit strange, almost like somebody was wiping their traces online. Wave started to search for more clues that could be hidden in Wiley's old Twitter account. And on that screenshot, he found an image of a stack of books by an author named Manuel Marrero. Wave will also refer to him as Manny going forward a couple of times. So I, I go look up this book, Thousands of Lies, by this author named Marrero, and there's a PDF of it online. I open it up, I look at the very first page, which is like the acknowledgement slash copyright page, and one of the names in there is Wiley. And I'm mm -hmm. like, okay, what's going on here, right? Because, you know, Wiley's not a totally unusual name, but this is probably not a coincidence. But then the other thing, too, you know, Manny's based in New York City and in Miami. It's the same as Wiley and Greg. And then on top of that, Greg's picture, Greg Solano, the founder of Yuga Labs, his picture pops up on this publisher's website and says that he's a contributing writer. Turns out that he had contributed both in 2013 and I believe also in 2017 as well. They've wiped that from the site now, his, his poems that were published on there. So let me get, just get back on track. You know, I, I wrote this piece and it's called The Potential Origins of the Name Yuga Labs. The story I put out was kind of confusing. It was kind of rushed, but I put out these questions asking, what's the involvement here? And what, what's the actual full story and context behind the name Yuga Labs? Because at this point it was obvious it had nothing to do with the freaking Zelda villain. Yeah. I published this and I'm like, I don't know how people are going to receive this. It, it's hard to even parse what I was trying to say, I could tell. And, you know, it basically gets no traction. It gets like 150 views or something like that. And then suddenly in my DMs, Wiley is messaging me. And, you know, he's saying, and I, I published most of his response, he gave me answers to all those questions. But there were contradictions. There were things wrong with his answers. There was omissions. There's information that he was withholding. And so, you know, he asked me to put them on my blog, right? I wasn't going to do that because I was like, dude, that, this is my platform. Like, if you want to put your answers out there, you can put them out there yourself. Like, I'm not going to do that for you. But I was like, okay. And then, you know, so I get home. I look at his message again. And I'm like, wait. Because here's what he said. He said, give me a second, because I want to make sure I quote it accurately. Okay, so he said, uh, since our friend ran a literary journal, Greg published a couple poems with him. Neither of us have read any of their books, right? And so that's the only thing that he said about the acknowledgement. But I was, I was like, that's kind of the monumental piece of this. Were you thanked in this book or is this someone else? So I messaged him back and I said, you're thanked in a book that you never read? Or does the reference... Wiley refer to a different person named Wiley. <laughs> and the, I mean, the question is kind of, you know, in itself is kind of ridiculous because it's like, okay, obviously you're that dude. So why are you not saying that you're that dude? And so then he says, you know, we grew up with the guy. It turns out they're childhood friends, right? We used to talk about writing a lot, but no, I've never actually read his book. I'm like, what? What? So, so you, the dedication is to you. It's taken you three times at least right now to admit that the dedication is to you. And he, then he says, yeah, I'm one of the people he thanked in the book from what I recall. And even that was like, dude, you don't need to recall. You know, you know that you were thanked in the book. And so, you know, I send him a message and I tell him that, 
I know that you're not telling the truth. Like this dude thanked you in his work. He said that you're instrumental to epiphanies that shaped it fundamentally. But, but let's yeah. kind of put, why, why is that book, let's say, controversial? What's the issue with being thanked in that? So at, at the time, I had kind of scanned through and seen some things that, you know, put up some red flags. But also being in literature, I, I myself read and even enjoy a great deal of controversial work through music as well, through all kinds of aspects of culture. So it's not like extreme things can't have context. They can't have context in literature. So I didn't make any specific allegations in that first piece because I wanted to get the time to actually go through and read. And eventually I did. I, I, I ended up reading that book, Thousands of Lies, cover to cover two times. I read every single That's interview dedication. and listened to yeah, well, you know, I was uh, the the accusations I'm about to to share are serious, so I wanted to make sure that you know I was really doing my due diligence around this, and so I mean, I listened to every podcast that this guy had appeared on. I listened to hours of his podcast. I've read other works that he published. I looked at some of the other authors that had published under his publishing company, and so I mean, there's so much in this text. The N word and and other variations of the N word are used over 50 times. There's a particular homophobic slur that's very recurring. It's very derogatory towards Black people. There's a lot of descriptions of rape, what I would call rape fantasies, including incest, pedophilia, racially charged rape scenes as well. Some like things that like you just would never say out loud. You know, like I said, a lot of pedophilia, some things that I found to be derogatory towards Jewish people, other things that felt like veiled white supremacist language to me. And that's just that one text too. So yeah, there is a big dilemma there with being thanked in that text. And eventually when I did talk to Wiley on the phone, he conceded, hey, I've read a few pages of the draft, which still seems to be a dubious claim, right? He's just saying, well, I just read like a page or two and then gave up. But even then, even if you only read two pages, the first couple of pages of it, or just any part of it, if you start reading it, and especially because, I mean, he knows this guy, this is his friend, right? So he knows his friend ideologically, like there should have been red flags going off, even if you only read one page of it. But there was, I would like to know, I mean, it, I think I find it interesting because Yuga Labs is huge, right? I mean, we're talking about multi-billion company. Talk about $5 billion, right? Exactly. So, so this is, I don't know, this is a, like a really substantial, huge company where the, the founders are now doxxed. And then there's you being active on Twitter, researching. And I think people can get that from you, that you do a very thorough research and then you love to dive into those evidences. But you, you're not having a huge reach. You, you're not like the, the Joe Rogan podcast when you say something. The oh, founder no. has to jump on a phone call with you. Like, how did that happen? Whose idea was it to call? And why do you think he accepted to go on a phone call with you? And what happened on that phone call? Can you walk us through that? I think that's fascinating. You had this direct access to one of the founders. So like, that, that's what was crazy to me. And like, th this is the dumbfounding aspect of it to a lot of people is like, why did this guy that's in charge of this billion dollar company, why did he call you? Like I said, my post had like 150 views. It didn't catch on with anyone. He probably could have just not called me to begin with and just kind of let it settle out there in the ether. But I think two things. You know, if you look historically at similar examples of stories is like, 
when someone is being investigated for corruption, it's often a natural response for them to call the journalist and try to get out in front of the story. And so I think that's kind of what his mentality was. I think he, because he saw how deep that it actually cut and it cut very close to, you know, the undercurrents of what's going on here. It, and it really has been a portal into who are these guys? What are they doing? What do they believe? Why are they making these creative choices here? And so I think that was maybe an effort from him to kind of tamp down, you know, the story and kind of, oh, it's just a friend. I don't really know him. That kind of like kind of distanced themselves from it. And then when I kept asking questions, he kind of lost his self-control a little bit and was like, I need to, I need to call this guy. So that's what happened is I kept asking him questions about like, what's going on here? You're, you're lying to me, right? Like you're not telling the truth. What is the truth? What's, why are you being so cagey about this? If this is your friend, just be like, oh yeah, that's my friend. I don't endorse any of the things that are in that book, but you know, that sort of a thing. He didn't do any of that. And so, yeah, he said, I get it. Can, can I trust that you won't publish my number? And then he sends me his number <laughs> and I'm like, all right, do, do you want me to text you or do you want me to call you? And he says, call is fine. And so I'm like, all right, let's do this then. <laughs> How did you, so, yeah, wait, so then, before before you did that, how did you feel? Like there's this guy giving you his personal number. How did you feel at that moment? Like uh, was that a thrilling? Were you afraid? Were you nervous? I was definitely perplexed. I'll say that. I was just like, what is going on here? But to me, it was a, a big red flag because it was like, okay, so he's lying a bunch of times to begin with through our DM conversation. And if he's trying to switch to the phone, what does that indicate? Well, it indicates that there's something that he wants to say that he doesn't want to put in writing, mm. right? And the things that he ended up saying on the phone call end up being, I think, pretty incriminating for a number of different reasons. And it, it became clear to me, like, you know, here's why these guys have are never allowed to speak to media or, like, are very controlled when they speak to media. Like there's always a media person in the room. There's always a PR representative standing right by, always ready to jump in, to stop them, that kind of a thing. And it's because the guy just starts spilling information right away. And to me, honestly, seems like a pathological liar. There were so many lies and mistruths that were told on the phone. And I even think even at that point, he could have like, like there are so many opportunities where they could have come clean and said, okay, you know, like, let's, let's, let's tell the actual truth here. There was, there is so much going on on that phone call that was just like, what did God, he say? You cannot keep your story straight. What did he say? Um, you know, I, I can't, I can't get into the specifics of all of it right now. I can get into the specifics around the Confederate coda, which was definitely a centerpiece in our conversation. In that, in that phone call as well. I can talk to that. Yeah. Yeah. We definitely have to get into that one. The Stonewall Jackson reference. And you explained this to me yesterday. So let's see if I get it right. When you bought the other deed NFT, that's basically an NFT that will be revealed for the other side metaverse that they have launched, right? They have to launch this huge metaverse where you could buy land. And some of the land had valuable characters on top of it. And there's around 50, you yeah. told me. They're called codas. And yeah. on the very first plot of land, and on the very first coda, which is a little character, they have named that character Stonewall Jackson, which is a Confederate general during the American Civil War. Can you explain why that is problematic for people who don't know? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we could do a whole nother podcast on it. I'll try to keep my answers distinct here and say that um, 
Stonewall Jackson was an awful person. He was a white supremacist. He was a person who enslaved people. He enslaved at least seven people. He viewed black people as inferior. And we know that because there are writings that that prove that he believed that they were fundamentally inferior as human beings. And he fought for the Confederacy, which was a group of states that had seceded from the Union in order to defend the institution of slavery. Now, I had also explained to you yesterday, too, the part that a lot of Americans are missing, we have all these statues, actually, Confederate statues are some of the most popular statues in terms of how many statues there are out there. There's almost as many statues of Robert E. Lee as there is, for example, of Thomas Jefferson in America. So the Confederate imagery is extremely prominent in America, right? And so this is a massively controversial and divisive topic within America, although views are trending towards the majority now seeing these as offensive images that need to be taken down. So Stonewall Jackson in particular was one of the centerpieces around which those neo-Nazis who had marched on Charlottesville, one of which ended up killing a counter-protester, they had organized around the Robert E. Lee and the Stonewall Jackson statues. So I mean, American blood has been spilled over these, these images in recent history. There's also a tweet from Wiley talking dismissively about people who wish to take down these statues. Mm-hmm. Why are there still so many people who, who don't feel that these are offensive, right? It's who you ask. It's predominantly white Americans who still have trouble recognizing these as racist images. Something like 80% of African Americans feel that the Confederate statues should be taken down or that they're offensive. And I think something like 90% of African Americans feel that the Confederate flag is a symbol of racism. It's really the white folks of mostly particular ideologies in America who still retain their attachment to these statues. Even just from a business standpoint, why would you include so prominently an example of this inside your metaverse in which you can imagine anything? You can literally imagine anything in the world. And the very first thing that came into their imagination, planted on plot number zero, is the Confederate coda, Stonehole mm-hmm. Jackson, which is a play, as Wiley acknowledged to me in the interview, it's a reference to the Confederate general, Stonewall Jackson, right? Mm-hmm. So I made a couple particular demands with them. The demands I made first were about changing the Yacht Club logo, which is what we talked about. And then I also said... You guys need to transparently release communications around the Confederate coda because Wiley claimed that they had a conversation that they were going to change it anyways before he'd even talk to me. How convenient. I don't believe that because they left it in there for almost three months. So I want them to prove to us that, hey, you know, what's go- what was the conversation? What was the conversation like when people at, at the company realized that this is in there? What did they say? What did people say? Right. And I'm also asking them to fully change the name to completely eliminate the Confederate reference. They changed it to Stoneholes, which still retains the double entendre. It feels like they're doubling down on their reference. It's still it's still just like the name Stonewall. And so I'm telling them they need to change it entirely. And then also to demonstrate verifiably to us that the Confederate coda was randomly generated on plot number zero, which, again, is owned by Emperor Tomato Ketchup one of the board eight founders. <laughs> so I want them to prove to us this was an accident. The chances we're talking about is close to a 10th of a percentage. There's only, I think it's a very, it's like 50 or it's 150. It's a very small amount. I think it might be 150 of these Confederate codas in there. So the odds of this guy randomly getting this coda generated at plot number zero are astronomically small. 
So, you know, I'm not accusing them of, hey, you did, you put, you planted this in, into your plot on purpose. But if they did, if they did put it in their purpose, what does that say? Right? What does that say? What does that signal to people? To me, it signals that black people are unwelcome or anyone who objects to the Confederate flag, that anyone who objects to that image is unwelcome in the other side. So I want them to just disqualify that they had done it intentionally, that they basically created the metaverse equivalent of a Confederate statue by demonstrating that it was random and minted in a a manner that couldn't be tampered with. I would quickly also go into the concept of the Yuga and Kali Yuga and serving the Kali Yuga. Can you say something about that? What, what, What do you know about that whole concept that seems to kind of connect religious Hindu elements with Nazism? This for me is a new thing that I've learned actually with the Gordon Garner website. I, I never heard about that before. Yeah. So there's a couple of concepts that I'm going to try to explain and I'll try to be concise with it. I'm not an expert in these concepts, but I think I can explain them. And the two concepts are first what's called esoteric fascism, sometimes known as esoteric Nazism or esoteric Hitlerism. Here's how I put that stuff in context. After World War One, there were deteriorating social conditions in Germany. I think a lot of people know that part, right? But because of the deteriorating conditions, there was an opportunity for extreme views to take root, just completely absurd things. Because, you know, faith in Christianity was faltering. It felt like society was collapsing. And this leads to something called the Volkish movement. Are you familiar with the Volkish movement? Is, is that an English word? Volkish? Like woke? Like woke? Like the no, no, no. It's a German. So you'll have to help me with that. Volkish, yeah. Volk, yeah. How do you yeah. say it? Volkish. Yeah, I think I think it probably does. Yes. Yeah. yeah. My 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 German is trash, so you, you're gonna have to. I'll I'll tell you when there's some German words I might need help with. <laughs> but yeah, so like this movement was essentially the idea that the Germanic peoples are the coming of the Aryan race, right? And that's where that phrase "blood and soil." Do you know what it is in German? What's blood and soil in German? Blut, Blut und Boden. Would I would say, but I'm not 100 percent. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I think it's, I think it's Blut und Boden. But that that's the phrase that the neo Nazis at Charlottesville were chanting. Right. It's a phrase which legitimized anti-Semitism in the eyes of German people, that Jews were alien people who needed to be exterminated. Right. And so they start believing these really far fetched concepts. And, you know, there are other insane theories out there. There is one German leader who said that Newton's theory of gravity was fake and that the universe (laughs) was actually controlled by magical ice. And so Himmler, who is like, you know, the leader of the SS effectively and basically seen as the architect of the Holocaust, he hated that Christianity originated from Judaism. Hitler kind of diverged with him on that stuff. Hitler saw Christianity as like, you know, kind of a way to control people. So he was pro-Christianity in Germany, but Himmler, Himmler didn't like that Christianity was associated with Judaism. So, you know, there's this woman named, her name is like Helena Balavatsky, I think, Blavatsky, I, I can't remember exactly. She had extracted imagery from Hinduism and Buddhism and, you know, kind of transferring through her and through, through other people. That's where a lot of Nazi symbolism, like the swastika or the SS runes come from. And the Totenkampf even too is a part of Nazi occultism. And so, you know, historians will kind of say different things about this, but there was definitely occultism involved with some of the Nazis. And so, you know, after the fall of the Third Reich, 
Nazis start dispersing across the world, South America, Asia, different parts of Europe. And they drag this mysticism that had been fundamental to, you know, Third Reich ideology into their post-war fascist ideologies. It's just essentially fancy, stupid justifications for white nationalism at the core of it. The unfortunate part is that these fascist writers have actually caught major political wind in the last five years. Prominently, you know, Steve Bannon. Yeah, yeah. The, the founder of Breitbart. Yeah, Steve Bannon ha has has dived quite deep into these thinkers, for example. And we still see parts of Nazi occultism kind of refracted across culture and stuff like Raiders of the Lost Ark, Hellboy. One of my personal favorites is the, the Wolfenstein games. You know the Wolfenstein games? Yeah, yeah. But there you fight against yeah. Nazis, right? And, and zombies. Yeah, you fight against Nazis. Yes, yes. That's why I like them because you know, you're <laughs> killing the Nazis. So, yeah. you know, there's a lot more to it. And I'm not an expert on this stuff. But that's esoteric fascism in a nutshell. Now, how does this connect back to Yuga Labs, right? Well, first of all, there's... So someone uncovered a cache of Wiley's old, old tweets, right? They found his old Twitter account and were able to basically engineer a lot of his old tweets that he had deleted out of it. They had had like a professional website or a professional organization come through and scrub a bunch of stuff is what it appears. So... Wiley was following this esoteric Hitlerist account, all these weird images of Hitler and like the sexualization, of, uh, hypersexualization of Hinduism and Buddhism and, you know, just these weird things about fascism and everything like that. And he wasn't just following this account. He was interacting with it and he was commenting on it and he was putting in like weird comments. So that's weird thing number one, because... It's not a coincidence that he's following an esoteric fascist account, you know? How many esoteric Hitler accounts are you following, Jonas? Do you know? <laughs> right? so, like, that's not something that someone accidentally does. No, so no, definitely that's not. That's red flag number one. Red flag number two is in Manny's second book, the one that's not Thousands of Lies, he wrote this book about a concept called the Kali Yuga. Um, and... You know, the Kali Yuga, again, in itself is not an offensive or wrongful concept. It's a legitimate concept within primarily Hinduism. However, it has been bastardized by some of these esoteric writers, right? And so, for example, Manny's second book, which does mention Wiley. Wiley's name is in there a bunch of times in the second book. It mentions this philosopher, Italian philosopher named Julius Evola. And so there were a lot of Italian philosophers who helped maintain this fascism after World War II via esoterics. And so, like, for example, Evola's book, Ride the Tiger, is probably where the term surf the Kali Yuga is derived from because he had this key facet of his beliefs saying we're in the Kali Yuga, the world just collapsing around us. And so that's what Manny wrote that second book about is the Kali Yuga. It was evidently clear, like, I mean, this guy, Wiley, had his location set as the Kali Yuga. And that's that's obviously what they named the company after. The mm -hmm. Zelda thing is just an add-on after the fact. Okay. Um, like so a happy accident or planned out. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. Greg is like a very, you know, nerdy video game guy. So I'm not doubting that he possibly had, you know, an idea of this Zelda game in 2013 or, you know, like maybe just looked it up or something like that. But 
Wiley can't erase that from his brain, that that specific word and that carries so much connotation to him as a person who claims to have been a practitioner of Hinduism for like a decade or whatever. How do we know, and maybe that's a stupid question in itself, but how do we know that it's malicious? It's a weird question to ask because you said like the thing in itself is disrespectful for a lot of people and can be hurtful for a lot of people. But let's say we look at it in a more benevolent way. Okay, these guys are nerds. They have all this knowledge in their heads. You know, they, they make this NFT collection, probably didn't have a clue also at the time when they launched this, that it's going to be huge. I mean, this is really an outlier, a billion dollar NFT project, right? How do we know that this is not just a thing that kind of got out of hand and they just tried to be a little bit edgy and, you know, hide some things? But how do we know that it's intended in a bad way? So here's, here's what I would say. I don't know what the intent of these men were. I don't know what they intended to do, what they intended to create, what feelings they intended to produce. And that's part of the problem is like at any point they can take control of their own narrative and start explaining and get on the record with this stuff. But I mean, they're like untouchable in that they refuse to publicly address or even acknowledge any of this stuff. And so it can be hard to figure out, you know, what's intentional, what was it intended to, to do how do we separate that from how it's being received from people, which is also still an important thing, even if things weren't intended, like, you know, they're going to say the logo wasn't intentional. They're going to say, oh, we were modeling it after a motorcycle club patch and stuff like that. That's not what matters. What matters is that that logo very much to me represents the 6 million plus people who were executed under a Nazi regime. Right. And the same thing with like the colonial traits, for example. Right. Like those things work in conjunction with each other. You can't tell a Korean person, no, look, this isn't offensive. Right. You can't tell a Jewish person, no, this isn't offensive. You can't tell a black person, no, this isn't offensive. You can't tell people what they can or can't find offensive in that way. And it's not just fringe people. It's not just stupid people like Wiley wants to make it seem. It's thousands of people who are perfectly intelligent and can see at the very surface, something is not right here. So I'll give you one more example too. So thinking too about that esoteric fascism connection, right? The world that they've designed, the other side, if you go to it, it very much resembles intentionally or inadvertently, it very much resembles this concept that the Nazis had called hyperborea. So Evola and this other philosopher who's been kind of attached to the Yuga stuff, Rene Guinan, believed in this imaginary place called Hyperborea at the North Pole, right? And so Evola didn't actually believe that man evolved from ape. He believed that people were devolving, degenerating into apes. That's what that's the language that he used as a consequence of straying from the North right? Straying from Hyperborea and moving towards the South. And this was ultimately a justification that was used for racism. You go to the, the map that, that on the other side website, it is difficult to say that it does not resemble Hyperborea, intentionally or unintentionally. But the thing about that is, if you are planting such kind of imagery in the collection and with Stonewall Jackson, we have confirmation that they put racist stuff in there and they knew it. They knew, right? Everyone who's participating in this is not participating in it consensually. Your audience is being left in the dark and people are being mocked and made fun of. 
by these little inside jokes that you have, right? Because you're saying we have all these specific reasons for why we created this world. And then you're not explaining any of that. You're not doing any storytelling. These guys are supposedly master storytellers, these creative writers and stuff. And they're not doing any of any storytelling around it. So yeah, of course people are going to start wondering. Of course people are going to start asking questions and they passed up every opportunity to get out there and clarify. Mm -hmm. You wrote in your post that you have yourself invested in the other side. You do have an NFT. So I wonder, why did you invest in it at the time when you were, have you been aware at the time already about these things? If you knew that this, it's questionable, why did you invest in the other sides, for instance? Yeah, I mean, there were things about the Bored Ape collection, like the Pickle Hub, that stood out to me right away. The the Safari hat as like, this, this isn't right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think the hard truth is that money clouds people's vision. And even though I wasn't invested in Yuga Labs, you know, I was invested in the rest of the NFT ecosystem. And there still is a perception that like the success of the NFT ecosystem rests within the success of Yuga Labs because they have such a strong monopoly over it. So unfortunately, I allowed myself to look past things and I regret that. I apologize to to people too for not using my platform or not using my voice to speak up earlier and, and, and be truthful about what I was seeing and what I was feeling. But at the time, Nicole is doing this little press tour. She's going on saying the accusations are so hurtful. There's no chance that we could be racist. We're Cuban. You know, everyone was saying like, oh my God, this is so far-fetched and everything like that, right? Like... That's the message that Yuga was putting out there as a company. People are insane for believing this stuff, right? And so in that faith, I had purchased an other deed before it was revealed. And so that's why I feel that they're acting fraudulently because you represented to your customers, you represented to your investors that, hey, these allegations are outlandish. And then they went and planted very prominently to me what is by far the most racist and serious piece of imagery that they put in any of their collections. The Stonehold Jackson thing, what's going on with this? And people had prominently brought it to their attention. They knew. And Wiley acknowledges, they knew, right? But they leave it in there for months. And it literally took me confronting the founder and then that nothing happened after that. And then I confront their media management representative and, and then finally they change it, but they do it in a very shady way. And they don't really even change the name of it. They tried to ignore it. They tried to just sweep it under the rug. And that's, that's very upsetting to me because they're deceiving people. They deceived me. Okay. So Yuga Labs um, is the biggest and probably almost like only NFT company out there that has sway in the space, right? I mean, they have recently bought CryptoPunks. The very first NFT project, it's probably not the very first, but one of the first and one of the most significant ones. And also the MeBits. All together, they probably are responsible for 80, 70% of, of the value of the NFT space. Where does that leave us? Because let's say I'm convinced that I don't want to support Yuga but I still like the CryptoPunks. Now I cannot support the CryptoPunks, right? Because the money from the sale will flow to them. What do you think will happen? Where do you see us going from here? I can't make predictions or give financial advice to people. What I can say, and this is my perspective as an American, 
is that here in America, people are just beginning to reckon that our country was founded on colonialism, that it was manufactured through genocide, pursued by a racist conquest, and ultimately built on the backs of enslaved peoples. And so to me, there are questions that people in the NFT space need to ask themselves. What kind of sacrifices and trade-offs are we making as a community when we have this massive multi-billion dollar organization representing our entire culture? Is it healthy for NFTs, for just one corporation to have such a monopoly of power and at the same time be so inept, so tone deaf and so resistant to criticism on so many levels? Are people happy with how Yuga Labs is representing NFT culture? Are their creative choices helping to bring people in or are they helping to keep people out? You know, how is the mainstream looking at this stuff? Think about what Yuga is trying to get you to believe that like the founders of this company have basically no existent life before this, that they have just wiped their existence, that these guys were basically like born yesterday, tabula rasa, right? And that they're working to censor critics and people who dare to ask questions. Is this good for freedom of speech? And is this good for the NFT space? And what I will share is that behind closed doors, people are singing a different tune. You know, I've talked to some very prominent influencers who have told me that, you know, they're fed up, you guys on their last straw, they've crossed too many lines, but they're not saying that on the timeline. So I encourage people to speak up and speak out now, because if you continue to wait, Yuga continues to consolidate power. So everyone who looks at this, right, whether they're in NFTs or whether they're outside NFTs, I would say the vast majority of people who look at this know that there's something wrong with what's going on here. What's missing is the courage to understand what we know and draw conclusions. So what I'm saying with that is that the information is out there. So it's not like anyone can sit here and say, well, I didn't know what was going on, right? Mm -hmm. It's just, do you have the courage to draw conclusions and to act on those conclusions? Mm -hmm. And so that that's my hope for people. All right. I think that's a beautiful ending word, Wave. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was really fun to talk about something else. Where should people go if they want to learn more about your work you could follow me on Twitter first. My handle is WaveNinja1. You can also follow my Substack. I recommend just subscribing to it. It's called Surfing the Waves. Yeah. If you are still listening, chances are that you liked this episode. DeFi is not just me. It's also you, the listener. And each day, there are more listeners joining. And together, we can spread the word about DeFi. By giving it five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. Send this episode to a friend who might be interested. Check out the website, visit defire.money and click on subscribe to get the new episodes and in the future also blog posts directly into your inbox. Also make sure to follow me on Twitter at defiremoney. All of this helps so we can continue to produce more episodes more frequently and get the most interesting guests that you deserve. Good night and see you soon.